Would you pray with and for me? Let's pray. It's a prayer that I've been praying throughout the morning. Father, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me, God, because I know my sins well. My sins are always before me. I pray you'd help my unbelief, but also that you would help our unbelief collectively as a church, Father. And I pray that by your spirit, you would pour out buckets of joy, of the joy of your salvation, and make us a willing and humble and selfless and sent people proclaiming Jesus in word and deed. Father, there's many people that come into this place hungry, Father, and we have been seeking for food, for refuge, and so many other things, some with our jobs, some like me, sometimes even in my communication and my abilities to do what I'm about to do right here. Some with their voices and singing, some with their intellect, who are thinking that that food will feed and satisfy the soul. But God, I pray that your food, the food that we feast on today, your grace and the word of hope that comes from Jesus and your words of life found in the scriptures, Father, would feed our hungry souls, God, and make us satisfied people as your people here in this place. So I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing here today, Father. Have your way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am one of the pastors that has the privilege, and I've been graced with the responsibility uh, to do what I'm about to do with you, which is open the scriptures with you and hope in my best efforts and my infallible, uh, my fallible best efforts, certainly not fallible, fallible best efforts to communicate the scriptures clearly to you in hopes that God would show up and continue to do a work in us deeply. And so I'm Brian. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, and we are using the summer to kind of walk through uh, some select passages of Isaiah. We've called it the prophet because Isaiah has, some, Isaiah has some things to say. And, and this morning, we simply encounter, uh, in chapter 6, Isaiah encountering God. And what an encounter with God actually does and what that brings about. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we engage in Isaiah chapter 6, a very famous passage of Scripture, which really we could take months, possibly even years, to just swim in, quite honestly. The truths and the implications as the people of God, as we glean this text, we could, we could spend so long here, and I get a few moments to do that with you, so hopefully I'll do my job well with you this morning. But let me start here with you. Uh, as a little boy, I was a fan of the Boston Bruins, right? The big old bad Boston Bruins. I loved hockey, loved watching it from afar on TV, watching like Rick Middleton and Cam Neely and Ray Bork and all these guys, all the great Bruins uh, play. And I used to love pictures like when I'd watch it on TV of the old Boston Garden, right? That's right, I said Garden. It's spelled G-A-H-D-E-N, Garden. That's how we say it here. And so Boston Garden, I used to love seeing uh, Boston Garden on TV. But it wasn't until I actually went, right, to the Boston Garden and actually experienced, as a little boy, I forget how old I was, I actually experienced a Bruins game, like, live in person. Got a ticket, paid uber amounts of money for it with my dad. My dad took me. And this is back in the day, the old garden. I was talking about the, the TD garden now, right? You've been to the old garden? All right, some of you have been here, right? So you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know where I'm going with this. You, you could spend lots of money in this place, and you could, you could spend money on a ticket and get stuck with a seat right behind one of these column things, these little stanchion things, and not see a thing, but yet enjoy the experience of just being at the garden, right? So at the garden, the thunder and the roar and the shaking of the building, whenever the Bruins scored or someone was going to throw down in a fight at the game, 
Bruins fans just starting to go nuts. You'd see cigarette smoke all over the place. You'd see rats bigger than the size of your dogs at home going all throughout the garden, right? It was something electric. It was small. It was confined. People smelled. There was all types of people from Revere with hairdos and all kinds of crazy things, right? The experience itself, right? So I was a Bruins fan, but it wasn't until I actually went to the garden itself and experienced the garden and the game itself that I became a true fan. It was the intimate reality of that experience that really, I said, I'm all in. I'm pushing all my chips in on being a Bruins fan the rest of my life. And I was all in. Here's what we want to confront this morning and we want to consider as the people of God in this place for this time and season. It's simply this. You and I cannot walk away from a real, true, intimate encounter with God and not be changed by it. Real simple, but, but, but tough for us to really wrestle with if you really want to be honest, right? You and I cannot experience a true, intimate encounter with the living, holy, glorious God and not be transformed by it. We cannot stay the same if this thing happens with us. And really, the question even underneath that that I want to pose to you is this, right from the very get-go. Is that you? Are you experiencing that? Have you encountered God? Have you encountered God personally? But even more so, for us as a church, free Christian church, are we experiencing God collectively? Are we experiencing the weight of God's presence collectively as a church to the point where we say, yes, we can identify evidences of God's grace that is changing us and transforming us for his glory and the good of the people that he's sending us to each and every single day. Do we have God as an intimate reality showing up and rocking our world and changing our church collectively and propelling us forward to the people group he sent us? Because if we're not, if we're not encountering that God, if we're not encountering an intimate reality in the presence of God, both personally and collectively, then we have not encountered God. We're only dealing with God as a distant concept, who really, if we want to get down to it, when God is a distant concept, we shape him. He fits our agenda. We allow him in as we see fit. And just as homie the clown said from In Living Color back in the 90s, homie, don't play that, right? God, don't play that way. God, don't play that way. And so we want to simply look at this this morning from Isaiah chapter 6. What did Isaiah encounter? And what changed Isaiah? And I can only give you three things that I can pitch to you from this text this morning. The three things are this. Isaiah encountered a glorious God. Isaiah encountered a holy God. And Isaiah encountered a sending God. So we're going to look at a glorious God, a holy God, and ascending God. And by the grace of God the Spirit, I would say this, and, and I need this in my life, really, seriously, we need to encounter this God. We need to encounter this God. All right? You ready to work? You with me? All right. A couple of you nodded your head, so that's good. I'm going to go anyway, so. <laughs> Number one, he encountered a glorious God, Isaiah did. In the beginning, Isaiah comes into the temple, and he sees the Lord, and he's high, and he's lifted up. And what he sees is the glory of the Lord. And, and as the psalmist says, it's the glory of the Lord that fills the entire earth. The whole earth is full of God's glory, his glory. And that word glory here means weight. It means a heaviness. It means God's presence and the weight and heaviness of God's presence there. And compared to anything and everything else or anyone else, God's glory matters. Nothing but God matters compared to anything or anyone else in our lives and even in this world. So 
For example, if I were to uh, hop up there where my man Will is right there, and I would go up on the upper balcony, and I'd take one of those beautiful hardback book Bibles, and I just dropped it from the top balcony and let it fall. Now, some of you might get mad at me for doing that, for disrespecting one of the Bibles in the pews, but, but, for, but for, for purpose, illustration's sake. If I were to do that, and you didn't know about it, you would hear a loud, and it might for a moment shock you, might kind of startle you, catch you off guard just a little bit, might shake you up a little bit on the inside, make your heart flutter a little bit, right? Let's just say, I don't know if you knew this, but I've been working out. I'm sure some of you could tell, right? Yeah, some of you could tell. Yeah, you know I've been working out. So if I were to go outside and pick up my uh, 2005 Chevy Silverado 2500, because I could, I've been working out. If I were to go out, if I were to go out there and, and, and pick up my truck and, and bring it in and, and come through the back doors there and go up the balcony, and if I were to take that thing like John Cena, right, WWE star, and drop that thing down, right, big difference between me dropping a Bible, a hot back, hot black book Bible down on the ground, and me dropping my 05 Chevy Silverado. That thing is going to shake the room. That thing is going to create a, a, an altering experience, right? You're going to feel the weight of that. Some of you are going to be shook up from that. Some of you are going to be shook up permanently from that. And our room and our space will be transformed by it in some way, the weight and the reality of that truck falling down in this room. Now, now I realize that's a radical illustration. And I'm telling you, I'll show you afterwards. I can pick that truck up. But things will be shaken. Things will alter. You know, every place in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you look at where God shows up, the presence and the glory of God shows up. Things shake, things tremble. In Exodus chapter 19, God shows up to the people of God on Mount Sinai, and it says the mountains tremble, the mountains quake, they were shaken. You go fast forward even to the Old uh, New Testament, Acts chapter 2, the glory of God through his spirit shows up on the people of God as they're gathering and they're praying, awaiting something to happen. And we could basically say the place was all shook up because of the presence of God's Spirit coming down upon the people of God as they were gathered together in Acts chapter 2. Because when the reality and glory of God comes into your life, everything is changed. Everything around you is changed. Your view of God, your view of yourself, your view of each other, your view of the world, everything is transformed when you have an experience of God. The reality and the weight and the glory of God lands down upon your life because that, the reality is this, the weight and the reality of God outweighs everything else and anything else and anyone else in the whole entire world. And when he shows up, things shake and people change. You've got Isaiah walking into the temple and he sees the, the train of God's temple, just, fit, just the bottom hem of God's garment filling the whole entire temple and thing place shakens and God goes from being a distant concept for Isaiah a distant concept to being an intimate reality so the question is this what's the difference between God as a, a distant concept and God as an intimate reality you know God as a distant concept has no weight to it there's no weight and there's no glory when God is simply a concept, simply just something that we assent to mentally or we just kind of give lip service to verbally. You feel me on this? Right? So, so when we just allow God, we say, yeah, sure, God, believe in him. I, I come to church. I, I'll sing the song. But I keep him at an arm's length. There's no weight and there's no glory to God as a, as a, as a, as a concept, as a distant concept, which means this. There's no ability for that God as a concept to come into your life and actually transform anything. Because here's the reality, when God is a concept, if God is a concept to you or to me, 
that means typically that you and I are still running the boat. You and I are still captaining, captaining the ship, you feel me? We're still driving the car, right? We're still running the show. It's still about our agenda. And simply what that means is if, if God is only a concept who I keep at an arm's length, I'm still running the show. I still control my life, which means I have more weight. And I have more say over my life than God does, essentially. For example, maybe, maybe it goes down something like this. We say, um, I need to go to church. I, I, I need to make some changes. You know, I realize my life has got some things in it, so I need to make some changes. So, you know, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going I'm to sing, I'm gonna sing a little more fervently. You know what? I'm going to show up, and I'm going to jump in with that congregation. I'm going to sing a little more fervently. Well, I'm going to start. You know what? JP told me to read Isaiah, you know, Monday through Saturday. I think he told you guys that, something like that, right? So I'm going to do that, or I'm, I'm going to pray. I'm, I'm really going to jump in and pray, and I'm going to start volunteering, and I'm going to give. You start going down the list, right? But do you know what's often motivating that with God as a concept? I need my agenda met. There's something inside of me motivating me that says, I need God to meet a need. I have something that I want God to do for me. I have some sort of thing going on, right? Maybe I need help financially. Maybe my kids aren't panning out the way I thought they would or the way I expect them to. They're not going to the school I want them to go to. They're not pursuing the career that I envision them doing. They're not hanging out with. They're not dating the person that I would like them to date or hang out with, right? Maybe you're looking for a spouse. God is a distant concept, right? Is essentially he's invited in but only to meet my agenda. He's a divine advisor, we could say. He's a divine advisor. And that God, as a concept, has no weight or no ability to change you at all. But God, as an intimate reality, coming in and experiencing the present as the weight and the glory and the heaviness of him falling down into your life, is a lot heavier than you are and things will change, which means this deep-seated beliefs that you've held on to, worldviews, things that you valued as important, the way you see things, interests and goals, all that stuff starts to give way when God breaks into your life as an intimate reality because the glorious God and encounter with him changes everything. And now instead of fitting God into our agenda, God becomes our agenda. His ways and his will and his desires for our life slowly start to transform us. And now it's about his agenda running our lives because we understand his agenda is good and better than ours. And so it's about his agenda and not necessarily about our agenda. And this is the first reality that Isaiah encountered as he walks into the temple, quite possibly like he did every single week. And the last thing he expected as he showed up to church, maybe he showed up because the coffee maker was new. Maybe he showed up because he knew who was leading worship and what kind of songs would be sung, or he was looking forward to seeing some friends or looking for some other sort of solace or comfort. The last thing he expected to experience or encounter was God. And yet here is the first thing that Isaiah encounters. It's God as an intimate reality. And I have to ask you, has this happened with you? Or is this happening with you? Is God changing you? Is God changing me? Is God changing us collectively? Is he ruining and reestablishing your agendas, slowly but surely, chipping away at those things that you hold on to? Have you encountered the glorious God, FCC? Have we? Have we encountered the glorious God? That's the first thing Isaiah encounters as he comes to the temple. Secondly, 
Isaiah encounters a holy God. It says that King Uzziah, this is the year that King Uzziah had died. Quick question, who was the longest term president in the United States? Who knows? Who was it? Roosevelt, which one? Franklin, 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 right. How many years? 12? Whoever said that, I didn't hear it, but I'll say that someone said it. 12, you're right. Longest term president. You know how long Uzziah was, was king for in the southern kingdom of Judah? 52 years now. 52 years. And listen, the people of God then saw great success under Uzziah's rule and reign. The nation had transformed, and yet the nation didn't handle it well. Uzziah didn't handle it well. If you go back into 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it gives a little depiction of that. It says that Uzziah became proud, became arrogant, and he was judged for that. And the people suffered that. They didn't handle the success very well. But nonetheless, this was an end of the era when Isaiah walks into the temple. Their king of 52 years had just died. And quite possibly, maybe Isaiah's walking into the church, the temple, let's say, looking for some sort of solace, looking for some sort of comfort, looking for some answers, looking for some connection in some way. And, and the reality is, is for a lot of us, we, we come to church looking for some sort of solace. You know, some of us are walking into church even this morning looking for answers and questioning and frustrated with all of the world's events that's been going on then. You feel me? Lots of stuff going on, and some of us are here, and we want answers, and, and we're, we're seeking understanding, and we want some sort of inspiration. We want some sort of peace in turbulent times such as these. We want comfort, and quite possibly Isaiah was in the same exact place. And just like Isaiah, maybe for you, encountering the reality and the presence of God might not really be truly on your radar. But yet God shows up with Isaiah, and there's three things that we can actually glean from this. There's three things we see with Isaiah. The first one is that he learns that God is holy, holy, holy. That God is holy, 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 right? This expresses magnitude, beauty. This tripling of a word, you don't see anywhere else in the Old Testament. This is just like the superlatives of all superlatives. This expresses magnitude and beauty and perfection. This speaks to the otherness of God. That God is unlike anyone or anything else that we in our human minds could even fathom or think about or try to compare to. He is so beyond that. He is so other than that. He is so perfectly good and pure, perfectly pure and perfectly holy. This is who Isaiah experiences, unlike anything or anyone else. Secondly, in light of experiencing a God who's holy, 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 Isaiah realizes that he is unholy, unholy, unholy. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. Not like, oh man, you know what? Like, yeah, I kind of spoke out of terms to my wife. Like, crap, woe is me. You know? This is, I do not even deserve to live. Woe is me in light of God's holiness. I don't even deserve the grace of the breath in my lungs that I experienced as I woke up and got out of bed. I don't even deserve the grace of waking up and seeing the beautiful gift that is my wife that I get, I've been afforded to do life with. I don't deserve the gift of seeing my three beautiful children smile and laugh and throw fits. Yes, it's a grace. I don't even deserve to live in light of who God is and who I am. Because standing before the presence of God and experiencing God as an intimate reality, as he is holy, shows you how utterly unholy you are. 
And this is actually one of the beginning marks of actually truly experiencing, having an experience, an intimate reality of God shine down in your life. And if you haven't been there, I'll say it truthfully and honestly, you have not met him yet. You have not met him yet. Thirdly, and this is key, Isaiah sees that the thing he is most proud of in his life, the thing that he just values and he banks his identity on and he finds all his worth in, he finds that that thing that he's most proud of is nothing but a filthy rag. Nothing but a filthy rag. He says, I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm nothing. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now listen, Isaiah's a prophet, which means back then he was a communicator. He spoke. He taught. He preached. He shared the truths of God with the people of God. So why would he say that? Let's, let's think about this for, for a second. Uh, we all have things, if you're human, and I'm assuming everyone in here is human, most of us, even though we don't act human all the time, just ask my wife, I don't act human most, most days while I'm at home. Um, there are all there, we all have things that we're, we're really proud of. Or I could say it like this. Uh, you all have things that you think you're the bomb in. You tracking with me now? You all think, there are things that you hold to that you go, you know what? I'm really good at this or I'm so good at that, or I'm the bomb in this, or this is what makes me special, right? And so we could go down the list, right? It's, we're talking about that thing. If we were to peel back the surface of who you are, it would reveal, hey, here's fill in the blank that makes you feel important, that justifies your existence here in the world. You tracking now, right? I get my worth, I get my value, I get my, uh, my sense of being from this right here, all right? And so here's the kicker with that, right? We all have that if we're human, something inside of us that we hold on to very, very important that, that we just find our value in, that we're most proud of. But here's the kicker, and here's where it comes back to kick us right in the shins, is that the minute you find someone who's better than you, or someone who's above you, or someone who has more than what you value, you are devastated by that. You can be devastated by it. You can be ruined by someone who's better than you, or has more than you, or does something that you value or you're most proud of better, or has more trinkets and toys than you, right? It can devastate you. For example, I will confess to you, FCC, that as a pastor, right, ever since I felt called, you could say compelled, led to become a pastor, uh, I've struggled with this. Um, ever since I felt that God was gifting me to communicate the scriptures and be a pastor and lead people and love people in hopes of seeing the gospel change people's lives, I have always, deep down inside, wanted to be great. And yes, by great, I will say to you, I mean great, like be thought well of. Have people say, what a great communicator. What a great pastor. Wow, that guy really loves people. Wow, that guy really knows how to lead. He has the gifts and the skills and the, and the charisma and the ability to lead people. Wow, look at that guy. Everyone likes him. He must be a great leader, right? I could just keep going on, right? Even I could tail this back all the way to when I was a kid. Wow, that guy's a great hockey player. Right? Do you want to know why? Because deep down inside of who I am, if you were to peel back the surface of who I am, even to this very day, resides a fearful, prideful, wrongly motivated, glory-seeking, people-pleasing, ego-affirming, weak man who has, at times, by the grace of God, seen this and wrestled with this. And do you know what happens to someone like me? 
All I have to do, especially in an area like this where there's many churches and many pastors and you can go on the internet, all I have to do is look to the left or the right or straight ahead on a computer screen and find someone that's better than me, someone who's a better communicator, someone who's more loving, someone who's a better leader, someone who's got a better mind, someone who's read more books, someone who's a better athlete, someone who's been lifting more than I have and looks better than I do in the, in the mirror, even though I know I look good, I've been working out. <laughs> and you know what it does to my soul? Because I'm a weak, sinful, prideful, people-pleasing, ego-affirming, weak man, human being, it devastates me at times. It crushes me the minute I start looking to the left or to the right. It devastates the soul. Woe is me. I'm undone. And I'll be honest with you. Let's just be truthful for one second, okay? Time out. In a culture like ours, and I'm talking about specifically Andover and North Andover, right? In a culture like ours, we feel this, don't we? Because if you're from Andover, North Andover, in some ways, or in this area for sure, you can value having a great education. You can be proud of the job you have or the reputation you have within your company, the position you hold, the rank you have. You can be pr proud of the house you own and the yard space you have and the cars you have or the places that you can boast about where you vacation. You can boast about your bank account, how frugal you are financially, how you've planned well. You can boast about your kids and what Ivy League schools they go to and what they do in life. And yet in a culture like this where we are super sensitive to those things, all you have to do is poke your head out your front door and look to the neighbor to your left and the neighbor to your right and realize that there's someone who has more than you. There's someone who has a better job. There's someone who's made it quicker than you have. There's someone who has a little bit more money than you do. There's someone who has a better vacation spot than you do. There's someone whose kids are nailing it somewhere. And it can crush you, can it? It can devastate you. It can make you live with fear and anxiety and worry without the peace that God affords us. Isaiah is a prophet. He speaks. And when he gets into the presence of God, he realizes that that thing, his mouth, his lips, the one thing that he's most proud of, that he's gifted in, is the thing that makes him a mess before God. He begins to see his pride. Maybe he begins to see the spitefulness in his words. Maybe he sees the bad motives behind what actually comes out of his mouth. And when he encounters the real, when he has an intimate reality and encounter with God, a holy God, he is ruined. He is wrecked. He is undone. He is lost. Right? There's no way around this. You go to Judges 13, there's this dude named Manoah, right? Samson's dad. And he's standing there with his wife, and they encounter God, and he turns to his wife, and he says, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Job said, right? The most righteous man at the time says, Listen, my ear has seen, my eyes saw you, my ear heard you, therefore I despise myself. Even Peter, right? We're talking big dog, apostle Peter in the New Testament, right? Spirit's doing amazing things through Peter. He's preaching the gospel. People's lives are being changed. Things are happening. And Peter encounters Jesus, God in the flesh, for the very first time. And one of the first things he says as he encounters Jesus says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck for a human being. If you have really encountered God, right, it's like the light turning on and you're just seeing dirt all over the place. Can you picture that in this place? Just seeing dirt everywhere. And if you haven't, and if you and I haven't been deeply convicted by what we see when the light goes on, the holiness of God's light shines down into who we are, then we'll never get to a place of God actually being able to change 
us. And I'm not just talking about personally, like a me and God thing and a personal alone time relationship. I'm talking to us as a church as well, collectively. That if we don't get to this place where we experience God and the intimate reality of who he is, then you know what we'll do? We'll continue to revert back to religious busyness or lip service in what we do. And we'll never, ever, 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 ever get to the place of true worship, authentic, loving community where we actually care for one another's burdens and we love one another and we love the world and, and then we actually propel ourselves out to the people that God's sending us to. We'll never care about the world that God is sending us to. So listen, Isaiah had to go through this and... and, and by God's grace, you and I have to experience, you and I have to go through this because that's who God is, holy, and that's who we are, unholy, before him. We will never get to a place of solace, true solace. We'll never get to a place of comfort. We'll never get to a place of peace. We'll never get, get to a place of actually risk in faith unless we've been deeply convicted and understand our sin and our pride and turn away from it towards God. I'm helpless. I'm lost. I'm ruined. I need grace. I need grace. I need grace. I need grace. Have you been there? Have you been there? Lastly, Isaiah encounters ascending God. John Stott once said that the minute humanity fell into sin was the minute that God sprung into mission mode a mission to redeem because he is a missionary God. And what it all boils down to for Isaiah and for you and for me is an encounter with God does not just come to reveal how holy and awesome and magnificent God is, and it doesn't just come to reveal how filthy and stained we are about sin, but it also comes to reveal that God is a God on mission to redeem, to renew, to recreate, to make new. First, we see that God sends an angel with a coal from fire, and, and that fire typically represents God's judgment in the Old Testament, coming down to judge and destroy because he's a holy and he's a just God and he can't let sin go. But there's the reality. You see that the coal is taken with tongs from the altar, and so there was a sacrifice on this altar, Right? So you've got the fire, and you've got the altar, and there's this substitutionary sacrifice on the altar from which the coal was taken. And you've got Isaiah standing there, and he's scared in light of a holy God and how unholy he is, and he's standing there thinking, I'm probably about to die. I'm probably about to experience the judgment of God because of my sin. You've got shaking, and you've got smoke filling the temple but he doesn't die and he's not destroyed. He hears a voice. And what does the voice say? It says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That word atoned means covered over, taken care of, paid for. The fiery coal does not come to destroy him. It does not come to judge him, but it actually comes to redeem him, to cleanse him because someone has paid for and covered the sin. And so the question is, is, who does this actually point to? What's going on here, right? If you fast forward to, to Matthew 27, now you've got the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 45, says this. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. 
At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Here's what's going down. You've got years later, after Isaiah's encounter, God's judgment coming down upon Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He was the payment. He was the covering. And as a result, you have the veil being torn from top to bottom, now allowing the presence of God to be freed up to come into our lives, not to judge us and not to destroy us for our sin, but actually to embrace us redemptively, to actually come into our lives and say, yes, relationship as sons and daughters now. I don't have to come into your life to destroy you because of sin, because sin has been paid for by Jesus. And now the presence of God and the intimate reality and the weight and the glory of God's presence coming down is not to destroy us, but to embrace us and to love us and to be with us and among us because Jesus was shaken to pieces and destroyed on the cross so that you and I would have our sin atoned for, our sin covered, taken care of, paid for. And now as a result, because Jesus was shaken and destroyed on the cross in place of you and I, you and I can actually have, as a result, unshakable confidence and joy in whatever life throws our way. As we seek to be the people of God that are sent, because what does Isaiah say as a result? He says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me to a people, by the way, that will not respond and will not turn and will not accept the message of grace. Basically, God's saying to Isaiah, hey, you, no church growth for you, bud. And yet Isaiah, gladfully, in light of the grace that he's been shown, undeservedly says, here am I, I'm in. I'll step up to the plate. Let's do this. Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of his people, a.k.a. you and I. In John 20, as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. This thing, and I'll speak boldly for a second as I close. This thing we call Christianity, this thing we do called church, and we seek to live out called church, is not primarily about us. If we've been graced with an encounter with God, his grace will change you and your agenda will change and your trajectory will now change. And it will not be primarily about you and I coming every single week to be fed. It will not primarily be about, about, about us joining a church to make sure that our preferences and needs are being met across the board. It will not primarily be about church catering to consumers. But it's his grace that recreates a radical community that is now absolutely bent on seeing people far from Jesus actually meet Jesus and experience his grace because that's the true food that every single human being is dying to eat and feed on and feast on, deep down in the depth of their soul. And it's the only provision that God has made through Jesus, the true food. The true answer, the true quenching of thirst comes from Jesus and his grace. And you and I, church, family of God, we are the primary means through which that mission continues in this world and primarily through the everyday stuff of life as we've been throwing at you for the last year or so. So let me ask you this. You and I need what Isaiah needs, don't we? Have you ever just said, uh, woe is me? And I don't mean just kind of like, again, I got to make some changes. You know, I, I know there's some things in my life, so I'll go to church, but no, whoa. I don't even deserve the breath 
that's been given to me for this moment as I speak. I don't deserve to even be here. I don't deserve to live. Listen, with all the sins and all the stuff that I've done, man, I do not deserve this opportunity to stand before you and the gift and the privilege to do this with you. I don't even deserve that. And yet God has been gracious to me. And I know God's been gracious to you too. So have you encountered that? Because here's the reality. My sin deserves punishment, but Jesus pays the ultimate price for the debt of my sin. And now, if God is for me, who can be against me? Who cares who's against me? Send me, because there's tons of places in and around this area of people that need Jesus. And so I'll go. I'll step up to the plate and still, by the grace of God, maintain joyful confidence because of what Jesus has done, my true hope. And so listen, only the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, will ever motivate you and I to be a people who live the everyday life as sent and sacrificial people rather than safe and satisfied people. You feel me on that? Because joy is the, I could sit here and guilt you, JP could sit up here and guilt you and try to get you, motive, the only thing that will ever motivate you and I to be on mission to people is joy is the joy of what God has done and his grace has revealed to us. Joy motivated Jesus in Hebrews 12 to be sent to the cross for the sake of you and I. And so may joy in being graced and redeemed by an encounter with God motivate you and I today to say, here am I, Lord, I'm stepping up to the plate. Send me, send us. Amen?